Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. You're in for a sweet show today, everybody. Sweet indeed. Ahead on Seasoned, we're talking about one of our most prized local foods, honey. And later in the show, we'll learn about Honey Bee Project in New Haven, where the beekeepers are industrious teens. And two local pros, a bartender and a chef, share how they put honey to delicious use. But first, what exactly is honey, and how is it made, anyway? These are the questions we put to Marina Marchese of Red Bee Honey in Weston. Marina is a backyard beekeeper and honey sensory expert. She's the founder of the American Honey Tasting Society and the author of several books on beekeeping and honey. Her latest is Honey for Dummies, which she co-wrote with Howlin Blackiston. Marina, welcome to Seasoned. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about my passion, honey. Essentially, honey is a sweet liquid that's produced by specifically honeybees. It's made from the nectar of flowers. It's a substance that they produce, which is their form of carbohydrate. So they basically make honey to feed themselves. They make their own food? They make their own food. Exactly. I've never heard it put that way, but I like that they make their own food. And then they also gather pollen from different flowers. They add some of their own enzymes and beeswax and they, they make pollen, bee pollen, and they consume that as well. Uh, the young bees, it's their source of protein. So they do, they make their own food and they basically shop the garden for nectar to make honey and, and shop the garden for pollen. Minus all, these bees are tiny little chefs. I love them. Exactly. How do honeybees make honey? I like that you say they shop the garden. So let's start with the fact that honey is only made by the female worker bees. Like everything else in life, women have to do everything. Sheesh. Women do everything. So we do have drone bees that are the male bees, but it's the female worker bees that make up the most the largest portion or population with, within any beehive. So any beehive is maybe 85% females because they do all of the work to maintain the hive, but they also make the honey. So essentially there's certain female worker bees that are a little bit older. They're, they're about three to six weeks old and they're scout bees and they have an incredible sense of smell. So these scout bees will leave the hive in the morning and they will scout out for flowers or, or trees or any kind of plant that has nectar. Their sense of smell is incredible. So they cruise around the garden or wherever they are. They stop and land on a flower when they find um, one that's very sweet smelling and they sip up the nectar. So they have these tongues that are called proboscis. And they look a little bit like a straw and they roll up like an elephant's trunk. They unroll their little tongue and then they suck up the liquid nectar. And it goes into their stomach, which is a portion called their honey sack, which is not the same stomach that they eat in. And they'll fill up their honey sack and then they go back to the hive and they'll deposit it to another worker bee will meet them at the entrance. And but in that travel back to the hive, they're adding some of their own enzymes, which starts to break down the nectar into simple sugars and start transforming it into magical honey. So when they um, land at the entrance, they meet up with another bee and they actually regurgitate it to the younger house bee. 
she'll accept it. And then she had some of her own enzymes and then deposited into those little beeswax hexagons, which is form a honeycomb. Wow. All I can picture when you just tell the story of how that happens is the bee movie when yeah. they're getting assigned their jobs. How do they get the jobs? I mean, I'm making the joke about the bee movie, but honestly, like, so these are scout bees. These are worker bees. These are drone bees. How does that happen? Essentially, a honeybee lives only six weeks. The first three weeks of their lives, they're a house bee. So the minute they're born, they have one job and their job is really to clean the hive so that the queen has clean little cells to lay eggs in. And then they, they become a house bee, meaning they will do house duties. They'll secrete wax. They'll make honeycomb. They will guard the hive. There's undertaker bees that will actually drag out dead bees that may expire in the hive. Wow. They also become guard bees. They f- will sit at the entrance and guard the hive. So if a bee tries to approach the hive that doesn't belong there, they will get them out. So they have all these really interesting jobs. Um, some of them feed and groom the queen because the queen does not do any of that. The queen does not make honey. She basically spends her whole life inside the hive in the dark laying eggs. And she has female uh, workers that will be, we call them attendants. They attend her. They make sure that she has a place to lay her eggs. She's fed. She's cleaned up behind. So the worker bees spend the first three weeks of their lives doing all kinds of house duties Then the last three weeks of their lives, they become foragers. So some of them take on the job of scout bees. And those scout bees are the ones that do the bee dance. And you may have heard the joke about the bee dance, but in reality, this is a true dance. So those scout bees, when they find some nectar on a flower, they return to the hive and they do this dance. And the dance communicates scientifically to the other workers that are foragers where is that nectar source? Where do I find that delicious, sweet nectar to make honey? Scientists have actually broken down this bee dance. It's sort of a figure eight, and it mathematically translates the distance between the hive, the position of the sun, and the source of the flower. So the other worker bees or the scout bees will watch this dance, then they will go out and they will start gathering nectar. Minus and I both need to pick our mouths up. They're both sitting wide open right now. Listening to the <laughs> there is a reason we call the, 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 there is that cliche, a busy bee. The busy because bee. bees are so busy. Nature really is perfect. Perfect. Holy smokes. And the beehive has zero waste. They use everything. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like we could talk about the different jobs that bees have forever, but we are talking honey. What I think is so interesting is the different flavors that are in honey and how it gets there. And I know it's very indicative to the terroir or or the local flowers that go around, the local everything. It kind of all makes a big difference in how the honey flavor is, right? Yeah. And as a new beekeeper back in 2000, you know, I noticed that my honey was a little bit different year after year. And as I met more beekeepers in the area, I started going to conferences and we were trading honey and people were bringing me honey from all over different places around the world, I became like fascinated with this notion that honey could be like almost pure, clear, transparent, or it can be almost jet black. And the colors and the flavors are so incredibly diverse. We talk about wine, wine grapes, there's hundreds of different wine grapes, and there's 
experts that can literally taste a bottle of wine and tell you what that grape is. And they can tell you maybe where that wine was produced and maybe even the year. So I saw this parallel between honey and wine. You've got all these flowers. Bees are making honey from flowers. And all of these honeys have a diverse sensory profiles. Very early on, I started asking beekeepers that were much more experienced and knowledgeable of me. So as a new beekeeper, is there a database that I can look at that will tell me if my bees visit dandelion, the honey is going to look this color and and smell and taste like this? Or if my bees visit, makes makes sense, right? Makes total sense. If my bees visit buckwheat, it's going to look and smell like this. And everybody just looked at me like, what are you talking about? We have wildflower honey. Everything is just wildflower. And I said, no, 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 there's all this honey. And it's so different. And how does a new beekeeper be able to talk about that honey and to describe to our customers what floral source or what season it was produced? There was nothing anywhere to talk about this. I mean, really, I did deep dives and deep research at the USDA. I um, went to the National Honey Show in London. Wow. My family's Italian. I end up in Italy. I end up in Montalcino looking for wine information on wine because I thought, well, if I want to be a honey taster, maybe I should study a little bit of wine. I stumbled upon a program in Italy, like honey school, basically. And it's essentially a sommelier school for honey. Oh, wow. I was so excited about this. Of course, Italy, the land of everything food has a honey school. Of course, they have an olive oil school and a wine school and a cheese school and a balsamic vinegar school. Sure. So I, back in 2013, I enrolled in honey school. My mind was completely blown because what they had done over 40 years is collect honey samples from every different floral source and every region and every beekeeper through competitions. They had honey competitions. So they were collecting and analyzing and tasting honey for 40 years and created the world's first database on honey tasting. Wow. So I basically went to honey school and I finished in um, a honey sommelier. (laughs) That is unbelievable. So you founded the American Honey Tasting Society based on what you had learned in Italy. Yeah. So I approached them and I said, they were, they were basically like, what are you doing here? Don't you have honey school in in the U S? And I said, no, we don't have anything. And they were, (laughs) they were like, really? You're such a big country and you've got everything, you know, that people would want and beekeepers, but we don't have honey school. So um, I approached them and I said, look, I feel really strongly that there's a big market to educate beekeepers on tasting honey, but also the program has to do with producing honey Um, knowing a good product and a bad product, like defects in honey and um, being able to teach beekeepers the best procedures, how to produce honey, harvest honey, store honey. So I'm curious, how does the honey in Italy stack up against the honey in Connecticut? Well, I, I would say that since so many of the beekeepers have gone through the program and there's so much, you know, Italian food is all about quality control Their honey is amazing. They have, uh, we have many, we have hundreds of different floral sources because we're such a big country and we have some really terrific honeys, but also they have different plants, but also they take better care of their environment. They don't use as many chemicals. They take care of the soil. 
And they're, they're a peninsula. So they have this beautiful Mediterranean breeze coming through. And, you know, the terroir, going back to what you said, that will take into account the quality of the honey or, or any of the foods, you know, the San Marzano tomatoes. It affects everything. Everything. So America, we don't really control how many chemicals are sprayed on lawns and mm-hmm. So our environment may not be as clean and we're start starting to pay attention to soil here. And in paying attention to soil specifically in Connecticut, what makes Connecticut honey so special or unique or different? What I would say about the honey here is that we have a lot of black locust trees and we have a lot of linden trees. We have uh, mostly wildflower produced. We also have some invasives here that I know there's a lot of organizations trying to get rid of, but some of them produce really good honey. So we have a light honey in uh, some of the southern regions, like Greenwich has a very light honey, uh, generally produced from black locusts or acacias, which is a super coveted honey. It's very light, produced in the early spring. Some of my honey has those qualities. I basically get um, a basic wildflower that's heavy on the basswood tree. So I get notes of lime in my honey, as well as a real super fruity And then in the fall, a lot of beekeepers might get a very dark honey from the knotweed invasives. So essentially, we have blends. There's some dandelion produced up in the north, which is amazing, up in the Hartford area. It just really depends on the season. It depends on the temperature, the rainfall, and when the bees can get out to actually visit those flowers. Can we talk about that for a second? Because I think that's really interesting to talk about the seasons when it comes to right. honey. And we started kind of diving into it there a little bit, you know, because you, you can you can almost maybe I'm wrong here. You can get honey any time of year. You can oh, kind of, no, you can't. You cannot. Okay. No. So talk about the seasons when it comes to honey and when you can get it. So bees basically only leave the hive when the temperature is 50 or 55 degrees or, or warmer. They don't leave the hive. So it could be in the middle of February and there could be two feet of snow on the ground. And we have one of those fluky days where, oh, it's 60 degrees for a few hours. Bees will leave the hive. That's what they do. Okay. So the seasonality of honey, bee season starts as soon as the weather in the spring starts warming up. Right now, we're just about starting bee season. Bees are starting to be active. You know, on early spring days, they're going to access a lot of the trees because those are the first things basically to bloom. And then throughout the season, different flowers bloom at different times and um, bees will access that. Now, for example, if somebody has their bees near like uh, raspberries or blueberries or fruit trees, the bloom time is very specific, like two weeks in May you might have a really special bloom. If it rains for those two weeks, the bees do not leave the hive and do not get that nectar. And then the nectar expires, the leaves fall off of the flower and you don't get that honey. So some honeys are very, very rare because of the seasonality. Like apple blossom honey is produced very early spring. The apple blossoms bloom really early, just like the black locust. If it has a rainy spring for two or three weeks and those bees can't get that flower, that nectar, you don't have that in your honey. So they'll go to the next bloom. Wow. This is fascinating. Yeah. Honey is really complex, right? Incredibly complex. I had no idea. Yeah. It's really special. It's really precious for those reasons that if the weather 
you know, mother nature doesn't cooperate, so to speak, the bees don't make that honey, or they can't visit that specific flower. So they'll move on to the next one when they're able to leave the hive. Can we go back to the queen quickly? Yeah, there's a lot to talk about the queen. I know, I know. And we don't have a ton of time, but I know you said she lives in the dark. She's doing her thing. She's got her little attendants. But she does reproduce, right? Doesn't she mate once? Exactly. So when she emerges out of her cell as a new virgin, she'll go on a nuptial flight and she'll go fly around. She'll leave the hive one time. Well, usually one time, maybe twice. And she goes and mates with drone bees, male bees from other places, not from her colony. So she'll mate with about 18 to 20 different drones. Oh my and gosh. At that point, she will have enough sperm for her whole life, which is about three to five years. And she'll spend her whole life in the dark laying eggs during the summer, during the season. She'll lay anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000 eggs a day. Plum. Did you not just hear what this queen bee has to do? <laughs> How many eggs she's dropping? How many was that in one day? 1,500. I mean, these poor drone bees, they see her once. They are kind of becoming friends. Things are going well. Next thing you know, they never see her again. Hello. Those drone bees, they can deal with it. Well, She's doing a lot of heavy lifting. So essentially, there's no real courting. What happens is they mate, the male drones mount the queen in the air. And after the act of mating, the drones die. <laughs> I feel bad for the drone bees. They're 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 getting they're falling in love. Things are going well, and then she leaves. I just feel terrible. It's like a, it's like an opera, yes. right? It's like the, the queen and the drone and the death and the. I just keep hearing that song from Titanic right now, and I'm just the, the boat's sinking. That's all I see. Come this back, Jack. This Jack, come back, Rose. What about um local beekeepers? Yeah, because uh, I know that uh, I have neighbors who are you know trying to do their thing, and so how do they harvest? the honey. I mean, I've seen folks with the whole suit and this whole thing, but how do they do it? And how is it different from what you do? Well, I'm a backyard beekeeper. Like 95% of us in the country, we're hobbyist beekeepers. I'm not into major honey production. I'm not moving my bees to different farms to pollinate. I'm a backyard beekeeper. So it's a hobby. We enjoy engaging with bees. We engage with nature. We're learning bee biology, what goes on within the hive. There's a lot to learn. You have to make sure that the normal activities are happening in the right sequence. The queen is present. She's laying, there's larva, eggs, drone, you know, the bees are bringing in nectar and pollen. So we just basically are stewards of the bees. We're just making sure that everything is going okay, that there's no pest or diseases afflicting the colony or getting into the hive. So we're basically just making sure things are going great. And we get maybe a couple hundred pounds of honey a year, again, if the weather cooperates and the health of the hive is healthy, you know, the hive, the colony has to be healthy and robust. So, you know, they're making some honey for their family and their friends. Maybe they're selling it on the side. Um, it's all good. You know, the more beekeepers we have, the better it is for uh, pollination, for food and just, you know, food for wildlife and, and even just ornamental plants or, you know, I have an edible garden. So I like to have the bees for the pollination of the food that I produce. I still can't get over the murdering queen. I'm really upset by this. <laughs> I live for that. I love that. 
Marina, can you just talk a little bit? I've had the chance to do this with you before, but the, the actual harvesting of the honey, like taking it out of the box and putting in that big white spinny thing. Can you just talk about that whole process? Yeah. So basically, yeah, when you were here, um, we took the frames of honey off of the hive. Once the bees fill all those little hexagons with honey and they cap it over. And it is legit like a frame. It's like a wooden frame and they build their hexagonal stuff in the frame. Yeah, exactly. We as beekeepers only harvest honey that is excess honey. We never take honey from the hive or the nest. So when they produce excess honey, we can take a little bit of it. We really shouldn't take all of it. We always need to make sure our bees are well fed. And that takes, you know, balancing and understanding nature and what's available in the season. So we take those frames and then what we do is we... Um, scratch open the caps. It's almost like uncorking a bottle of wine. You, you open up these little caps on the frame mm -hmm. and then we put them in what we call a, an extractor or a spinner. And it acts basically like um, a salad spinner. So it spins with a crank and all of the honey gets spun out through centrifugal force and the wax comb stays intact. And we can actually return that to the bees so that they can lick it clean or they can use it for more honey making, depending on the season. And then the honey stays in the extractor and it just kind of falls to the bottom. And there's a spigot and you can literally just bottle it and just eat it. And that was one of the things that was really appealing to me when I first visited an apiary was honey doesn't need any special treatment. Mm. It's raw. You take it out of the hive and you can eat it. It's like picking an apple off a tree. You don't have to do anything. You just enjoy it. It's one of the things that I just loved too when I saw when we did this and I saw you doing it. It literally comes right out of that comb and you just eat it. It's nothing. You just eat it. nothing to do to it. Exactly. It's raw, untouched by humans. This is so fascinating. I love it. Um, if I had to have one honey dish... What's the one thing? And, and I only had one option to eat it. What would you recommend I do with that honey? I would serve you a big whopping pile of fresh ricotta cheese sprinkled with pignoli nuts and berries and a little cacao powder and then a oh. wad of honeycomb. That sounds great. All right. It was lovely talking to you. I'm heading to your house <laughs> right now. <laughs> Marina, this was so wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm so excited that you were interested in bees and honey. That was backyard beekeeper and honey sommelier Marina Marchese of Red Bee Honey in Weston. She's got a book out right now. It's called Honey for Dummies. Later in the hour, we know what you're waiting for. You want to know how to make a classic bee's knees. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, you'll be inspired by the work being done by Honeybee Project in New Haven. We'll talk to the founder, a bee instructor, and two local teenagers who tend to the hives. I really haven't come across a beekeeper who does not understand when you say, like, beekeeping is my therapy or beekeeping is a spiritual practice for me. You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. 
In researching Honeymakers in Connecticut, we became aware of a program in New Haven we knew we had to share with you. Honeybee Project, that's H-U-N-E-E-B-E-E Project, was founded by licensed clinical social worker Sarah Taylor. The project is a social enterprise that brings beehives to community gardens and vacant green spaces in New Haven. Local youth are mentored and trained as beekeepers. In a moment, you'll meet Alex Guzman and Dylan Torres. They completed the four-month beekeeper-in-residence program and are now employees of Honeybee Project. And Sophia Lafargue, a bee instructor and mentor. But first, founder Sarah Taylor explains what the Honeybee Project is all about. So Honeybee Project is a social enterprise based here in New Haven, and we offer employment and training opportunities for local youth and use beekeeping as a vehicle for these opportunities. And so youth build and paint and install honeybee hives in community spaces. They maintain honeybee hives, they harvest honey, create honey-based products and market and sell them. Some of the products I think are pretty cool is you guys have amazing candles and planters from like some pretty cool artists. So it's not just about honey. No, it's not. We really want to encourage people also to be advocates for all of our pollinators, not just honeybees, and to do this by learning about what plants can be planted, the importance of green spaces, and also just to generally connect our community to nature. Yeah, I tell you, we've spent this entire show learning about honey and about bees and all the work they do. And it seems like you guys are busy as the honeybees are. (laughs) But in terms of community, talk about, I think you said it was like a parallel process at work. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, so much of Learning about honeybees is learning about the ways that all of the bees interact with one another and the ways that they all carry out different roles and each role is integral to the community of the bees. There's a lot of jobs in a beehive. It's a lot of jobs. (laughs) A lot of jobs. Yeah. And that's life too, right? Like there's a lot of jobs and we all need one another and each individual is integral to our group and to our larger community. And so Honeybee is composed of a host of instructors and mentors and youth and volunteers. And then we're also uplifted and empowered and fueled by our greater community and wouldn't be able to be here or be successful without them. You're also a backyard beekeeper though, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm still new to beekeeping. I began beekeeping about four and a half years ago and came into beekeeping by way of beeswax candles. So never thought that I would care for bees or touch bees or, or even be interested in it mm-hmm. and really set out to create a social enterprise that employed youth and taught youth how to make beeswax candles through beeswax candles that led me to beekeepers and I was hooked. I was hooked by their passion. I was hooked by everything they had that they had to teach. Talk about how the Honeybee Project, where the idea for it came from, how you conceived that. My background, my training is in social work and I've worked as a social worker and also as a clinical therapist in a variety of capacities, but always interacting with the child protective and foster care systems. Honeybee Project was really bred 
both out of my own discovery of beekeeping as a therapeutic escape and also out of my own frustrations and sense of burnout related to working uh, within these systems. And so Honeybee Project is meant to be a therapeutic vehicle for healing. And as we talked about, for building transferable job skills and really filling in some of these gaps in the system. It's interesting. I'd asked, I was telling my daughters, I have three daughters. I was telling them that I was going to talk to you guys. And they were asking me, how, how is beekeeping? How could that be therapeutic? It seems like it'd be incredibly stressful. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I really haven't come across a beekeeper who does not immediately understand when you say like beekeeping is my therapy or beekeeping is a spiritual practice for me. Right. There is something about the need for being aware of your body in time and in space that causes you to both tap into that mindfulness and also to slow down. And everything else in the world just kind of like enters into the background and it's just you and your bees. Yeah. And they're, they're beautiful. Well, I want to bring Alex in because I kind of want to get her opinion as well on this. And Alex, you actually finished this program now and you're a bee apprentice. Is that right? Correct. I'm currently under the mentorship of one of the instructors, Noah Macy. And I'm learning how to be able to manage hives on my own. Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. I also like help to teach teach others a little bit. Well, I got to imagine Alex having you there. It helps people who haven't done this before feel comfortable around it, right? Because for me, I've had the chance to harvest honey and be around bees and I've done it. But I'll tell you, well, the first time you do it, it doesn't feel like it should be as comfortable as it is. Oh, no, it's it could be very terrifying. <laughs> I get that a lot, especially from people my age. You're next to a couple thousand bees. I wouldn't blame anyone for being nervous. <laughs> now, Alex, how old were you when you first started getting around bees? I was just turning 16. Wow. So it's still pretty new for you, but you've gotten this far in the program. And so do you still have a little bit of fear in there? Is it a healthy fear? Yeah. You know, sometimes I can get a little scared, a little nervous, but um, it's not as bad, I guess. Once you start uh, realizing that you're wearing equipment, you're safe. The bees really aren't going to do anything to you unless you're messing with them. So everybody keeps telling me, if you just, if you, if the, the bees won't bother you until you mess up. Generally, if you get stung by them, it's because you did something wrong. Is that right? I guess, yeah. What does it mean for you to work with the bees and with other members of the Honeybee Project? In general, being with the Honeybee has helped me so much. Not just being comfortable around bees, but also a general socializing and learning new skills I can utilize in other workplaces. What's the favorite part of your job right now? Uh, right now, um, <laughs> uh, just uh, opening up those hives and just getting into it. The second I'm into it, I'm just focused on that. It is one of the most peaceful things to me personally. Very cool. Dylan, uh, I want to bring you in and talk to you a little bit as well. You know, you've done, you know, also part of the beekeeper training program. How was that for you? We, it was very like, they tried to get you in tune with everything. They started like, it was like a pandemic and all this. And we were scared to socialize with anyone and seeing new faces when you're locked in the house was kind of scary at first, not going to lie. Sarah guided us. She was like, oh, this is them trying to like have us like become a team with one another. Dylan, how old were you when you first started working with bees? I was 15 years old. So now you're a garden site manager. Is that right? Yes. 
I mean, that sounds like a lot of responsibility, like a lot of stuff going on. Uh, <laughs> what exactly do you do at a site? We check out the bees. We'll clean up the garden, make sure it looks good. We'll, we'll take photos of our products and stuff posted on our, uh, what is it, website and on the IG at Honeybee. Shout out. Make sure you check them out at Honeybee on Instagram. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Your bio online says that you love this program so much. You're an eager recruiter for the program. What do you think other teenagers might want to learn and why would they want to learn the art of beekeeping? The art of beekeeping can be like, it helps you like cherish more of what's around you and how like bees actually help us in our environment and in our community. Right. It almost made me see how actually important they really are around around these areas that have bad pollution, bad airing, not that much stuff going around. Once you start learning about bees, start seeing how, how bad we really need them, I think people can actually come around. I never really realized how coordinated they have to be and how the fundamentals work. And they each have like roles in the hive. Yeah. So like, it's just like a transitioning, like team, it's constant teamwork. Nobody's lacking. It's just like their center, you have this, you go out, you help us. And we come in, you get all that stuff. So yeah. It's pretty cool to learn. I've been learning a lot about it this whole episode. Alex, when you first started learning about bees, what was it that really surprised you like or shocked you right off the bat? People kind of, my parents, for example, they're like, you shouldn't get near those. That's definitely not safe. And you kind of develop that mindset, you know, that I don't want that near me. Don't get that near me. That's their job, not mine. And eventually that, that kind of changed. Yeah, I guess that's probably a good point. You get so used to it. So that, that makes a lot of sense. And I want to bring Sophia in here in a second. But Sarah, before I bring her in, I want to ask you, how does it make you feel when you hear these two young people talking about bees the way they do? You can hear how excited they are about it just in the conversation and, and seeing how much they've learned from it. How does that make you feel? Oh, I'm, I'm getting emotional over here, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the other thing is Alex has been with us for two years and yeah. Dylan is going into his second year. And it's an honor to be able to watch and witness them grow, not just in their comfort with bees, but in so many other ways, in their confidence, in their relationships. I'm just immensely honored to be able to have this experience. I think it's awesome. <laughs> Sophia, I got to bring you in here because I don't know where you have the time to do the things that you do. You have a day job that is a very, very important day job. So can you tell us what that is before we jump into beekeeping? Sure. I'm a staff director, the U.S. House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee. <laughs> so it's a pretty busy day job. Wow. That's true. But I'm also a mother of four children. It's getting even uh, busier now. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting even busier. Yeah. Here with the Honeybee Project, though, you're also you're a bee instructor. Is that right? That's right. Maybe tell us what that is and kind of how it would start with someone who's never been around bees before. How would you bring them in? One of the things that I like about my role is that um, Sarah was genius enough to include in the program an introduction. So we talk about bee biology, or I do, as one of the instructors. And it's a great way to orient the trainees and the mentors, everyone in the program, actually, to the life of bees and how intersectional they are. I think Dylan mentioned some of the things that surround bees in terms of what we know about them and what they need and how they, the environment affects them. So we do lessons that lead up to the work that we'll do in the garden. 
And that's pretty exciting for me to be able to impart some knowledge about the bees and bee biology. And how long have you been beekeeping? About a decade, but I've been around the bees all, all my life. I was a kid in Jamaica. My uncle was a beekeeper and he'd bring over bottles of honey and the comb. And I didn't, you know, going to the store, there was no Walmart or Target or corner store to go to to buy wads of gum for very cheap. So I, I used to chew the honeycomb as a form of gum. And so my entry point was the sweetness of honey. That's a good entry point. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about beekeeping that makes you want to prioritize it and, and share knowledge with kids and you know just, just make it such an important part of your life? What happens with beekeeping is that you have to be in the moment, right? So for someone like me, it's very busy. I have a lot going on. People will often ask like, why would you do that? Like, why would you need one more thing? Yeah. And the fact is it uses a totally different part of my brain and helps me to have that moment of being super present. It's still a busy thing to do. Like it's still work in that sense. But right. when I'm in the beehive inspecting, I'm singularly focused on those organisms at that moment and using all of my sensors. It's just an incredible experience in that sense. So it's a way to force meditation and being present and being mindful. And I think there's a growing body of scientific work on that, actually. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it's also very different than my day job in the sense that there is a concrete result. I do certain things in the hive. I will get certain results. I study the bees and react to them. I will fix the problem and have a concrete result. And so it's not the sort of... Ev non-ending process oriented. It's in that sense, very concretized. And it comes with a community of beekeepers who are always communicating with each other. So you have an interesting attachment in that sense too. How do you help get the kids hooked on bees and not be afraid of them? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the first thing is fear is okay. Yeah, There's an empowerment that comes with being around the bees too. And, you know, it is the, the other side of fear is power. And Frankly, it's nice to see that transition from one to the other. When trainees get comfortable getting a little closer to the bees, when they hold their whole first frame of bees, it's a wonderful evolution. That's quite nice to see. And the growth in other ways is also pretty fantastic. Confidence is a powerful thing. Uh, Sarah, Sophia, Alex, Dylan, thank you all so much for your time. You're doing amazing work and I look forward to seeing what happens to you guys in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, man. You just heard members of the Honeybee Project in New Haven, Sarah Taylor, Alex Guzman, Dylan Torres, and Sophia Lafargue. Go online to learn more about them and the empowering work they do. You can even sponsor a hive at the project. They're at H-U-N-E-E-B-E-E-Project.com, or as Dylan said, find them on the gram at Honeybee Project. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, the classic bee's knees but with some twists. My wife loves that cocktail. That's why I, I love making it. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Before we talk to some pros about the ways they use honey, we asked you, our listeners, for your honey recommendations. Musician Ralph Quito Rodriguez gave his wife a shout-out on our Instagram page for being the beekeeper in his family. Quito, 
Send the address, please. We want to come by for some fresh honey, like stat, like tomorrow. <laughs> CT Public's Cosma Reed recommends honey from Lavender Pond Farm in Killingworth, and online, of course. And Casey Treesig likes swords into plowshares, which sells its honey to wholesalers. But you can find it in the ice cream at Kelly's Cone Connection in Hamden. Are you interested in honey cocktails? The Hive Barn restaurant in New Britain is brand new, and it's bee-themed. Cocktails include a honey blossom margarita and a queen bee made with gin. Sounds delicious. So I asked my friends on Facebook to share how they use honey in their cooking. Cocktails are the easiest way to incorporate honey into something delicious. And veteran bartender and legend Gary Five Boys Crone from the Ant Bar based in Newtown explained why honey works so well in cocktails. Honey as a sweetening agent is great because it adds a richness to cocktails that plain simple syrup doesn't. Most important thing when you're working with honey is you can't just use honey on its own. You have to dilute it. It's best to boil, you know, put it in with some boiling water, almost like you're making simple syrup because uh, it'll just get all stuck in your shaker if you just try to use just honey uh, in a drink. So I make uh, at a bar here in in Newtown that I work at also, uh, we make a honey syrup. It's less than 50-50, a little more honey than water. So let's say 60-40 split. And that gives that great taste to the cocktails. I like the honey syrup idea because that makes it so much easier to mix. And, you know, we talk about simple syrup, which is generally equal parts sugar and water. Bring that water to a temperature, nice and warm. Mix in your sugar so it dissolves nicely. Then reduce it down a touch. Same thing with, with honey to make the syrup? Yeah, exactly the same thing. Um, like I said, I like to go a little richer. So 60-40 maybe. Stir it a little bit, reduce it. You still want it to have that viscosity, right? You don't want it to be just water uh, or too watery. The thick, thick honey, like when it's just out of a little bear or whatever you get it out of it just won't work in your shaker with ice and everything it gets too cold what's one of your favorite cocktails to make with honey so a bee's knees is probably the most classic honey cocktail that i could think of it's really simple two and a half ounces of gin two and a half ounces of um, fresh lemon juice or maybe two ounces depending on how tart you want it and like an ounce of that honey syrup or an ounce and a half of that honey syrup usually i dry shake it first Okay, so wait, we got to talk about dry shaking. Does that mean a shaker with no ice in it? Shake it with no ice in it first. Okay. So that you get kind of a a frothy head on the top. And then you throw the ice in, shake it again, strain it. I usually double strain everything because I don't like that, like little ice bits in the cocktail. And it also makes that head look better. Okay. So I usually double strain that into a coupe. You could put a nice lemon twist or a piece of lemon in there. My wife loves that cocktail. That's why I, I love making it. That sounds like a great cocktail. It is. And it works with so many different things. We do a tequila honeybee and I do it with uh, bourbon all the time. And I've gotten actually, my wife now has switched from gin to bourbon, which she never drinks bourbon, right? But she loves this cocktail. The bourbon, bourbon versus gin, you know, uh, gin is obviously is going to be more aromatic, I guess. But bourbon gives it a different richness and a, a sweetness from the corn that added to the uh, the sweetness of the honey. I, I really like it. And maybe those vanilla notes too, kind of coming through from the barrels, right? Yep, absolutely. Could you do vodka with it? You could, yeah. I mean, as a bartender, I guess I'm going to say vodka is not as interesting as the other things, but because vodka, <laughs> vodka you're going to just taste lemon and honey. It's going to be like yeah, drinking lemonade. It's going to be delicious. So let's run through that drink one more time. So about an ounce of lemon juice? Let's say two ounces of each. The spirit, whatever you're going to use, gin, tequila, or bourbon, let's say, or vodka, like you said. Two and two of uh, the lemon juice and then an ounce of honey. Oh, that's easy. I play with those proportions a little bit, make sure I have a, a drink that, that looks good in the coop. But yeah, that's easy. 
what a great summer drink that is to have and incorporating yeah. some great local honey in that, I'm sure. Easy. Yeah. And, you know, all those great things about local honey, like I know a few people in town that are keeping bees now. Yeah. As we move towards healthier cocktails, which that's a big trend now. If you put local local honey into, into a cocktail and, you know, and, and fresh lemon juice, you know, you're getting your vitamin C. If you have allergies, local honey, because of the bees are pollinating everything locally. A, a spoonful of local honey helps you tolerate the allergens that are around you better. So throw that in your drink and you're like doing something good for yourself. This is why you're a legend, Gary. You always make me feel good about having a cocktail. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. The bee's knees. This sounds like a great drink. I can't wait to try it. Thanks, Gary. You got it. Take care. I also spoke with caterer Ani Robina, owner of Ani's Table, about an idea that I would really like to steal. She makes a tempura batter, guys, using honey. I do. I make it with honey and smoked paprika. Get so much call now for vegan hors d'oeuvres and, and sure. things that are, are a little different. And, and so that sort of becomes you know, run of the mill. And I always love to play with sweet or Kung Pao or it's sort of derived from that. And, and so we slowly started taking the honey out of the sauce that we were tossing these things in and brought it into the tempura. And now we're presently using a truffle honey in there, which is just outrageously good. Fun. Can you talk about the recipe for the batter itself? What do you put in there? I'm guessing, is it like soda water and honey and some flour or cornstarch or what do you use? So cornstarch and Wondra, I, I am a fan of Wondra flour oh. for, um, you know, it's got a lot of finer texture to it. Absolutely. Um, it gives it just a little bit more of the cornstarch. And so I usually use a combination of those two. We just started playing with a gluten-free one that has coconut flour. It's a little grainy. We're working on it. Mm -hmm. um, and then and then honey to taste and, and like every good chef, I don't really have a recipe, but um, we, we do use, uh, uh, we use either soda water or beer, um, which adds a little bit of a flavor too. And we actually marinate the vegetables for about 24 hours, you know, with a little soy so that you get sort of a, a really nice complexity of flavors. So let's talk about as if we're home cooks and we're teaching a home cook how to make this tempura batter using honey, which just sounds like a great idea. And it's something I'm totally going to try doing. Talk to me as a home cook. Like, what would I do to make this batter? What you want to do is you want to get some cornstarch and you can use equal parts of cornstarch and, and wonder to make it easy for everybody. And, and you're really looking for is a really nice light flour combination that's you know super fine okay and then you know that those will cling well you want to take the honey and you don't have to always use club soda i mean i know people that use water and maybe at home that's what you want to do and you water maybe water down that honey a little bit so that it's just not quite as thick a little bit of warm water um so that it's something that you can stir into the flour really well right and so you, you want you want a thick batter you know that it clings to you know your finger a little bit you don't you don't want to have it come up and, and slide right off is is not is not what you want you know you want it to, to start to stick to something and then again if you want to do a vegetable if you want to do like asparagus is really delicious and this cauliflower put them in a little bit of soy okay. for maybe an hour you know just a little bit of soy sauce or you know um a little fish sauce something that adds to the vegetable just a little bit of depth or a little bit of uh, Add a little salt. Put a little salt in there. That salt is that umami. Exactly. Drain them. You want to dip them in the batter. And I use a wok at home. Mm -hmm. You know, like I have like an old Cafalon wok that, you know, the sides are a little curved and, and it gets a little deeper. And I think sometimes at home, people are worried about frying, you know, deeper. And, and so something like that is kind of safe, I think, at, you know, at, at home. Put it in medium heat, medium high heat. You know, you throw in a little batter, and if it starts, you know, sizzling and you know, and it's going, then your oil's at the right temperature. You just want to keep your eye on the color, take it out, and strain it. And then, if you want to, you can have 
a little like a mock kumpau. Um, you can do a little bit more honey, a little bit paprika, you know, a little bit of soy, all those things that you've already used. You can make a little sauce um, on the side, either for dipping, or you can throw the hot tempura right into that bowl and toss it and make a nice little glaze. Sounds delicious. So use that Wondra. Don't be afraid to pick that up. That stuff's been around forever and it works wonders. That's why they call it Wondra. Equal parts Wondra, a little bit of cornstarch. Get some nice, good honey that you like, preferably a great local honey. And I think once you get a batter like this down, keep it simple. Use the honey, use the Wondra, use the cornstarch, use some water, test your seasonings on it, make sure you got it right where you want it, then start messing with it. You know, right away, I want to use ginger beer instead of water. Oh yeah, what a great idea. I love the idea of using the honey, Ani. That's awesome. It's just delicious. It's just sort of like that special touch, so. That was Ani Robina, owner of Ani's Table. Find her at anistable.com. Earlier, we heard from bartender extraordinaire, Gary, five boys, crone. Find him at theampbar.com. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Worker Bees, Robin Doyenakin, and Katie Talarski. I think it's safe to say that Marisol is the queen of the hive. Well, that is mostly true, Plum. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, everyone. Now buzz on over to your neighborhood farm or apiary and treat yourself to a jar of local honey. See you next week. 